Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South on this show. Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com is going to join me. We're going to break down Florida's win over Vanderbilt. We'll also preview the SEC Big 12 Challenge, uh, obviously starting with Florida and their trip to West Virginia. That section of the show starts around minute 40. So if you can't handle uh, the discussion of Florida's weird second half against uh, the Commodores, go ahead and go up to that point and listen. Remember to give us a rating um, on Apple. Give us a heart on Spotify. Subscribe. All that stuff helps um, us gain sponsorship and, and keep this show going for you. We appreciate all you listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Florida Basketball. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, uh, Gators played a game of basketball with Vanderbilt yesterday, and they won it. Yeah, uh, unquestionably a game of basketball uh, was played. Uh, I'm glad you were were in person for that one, Neil. I I am just fascinated. I know you've been to a couple games now. Uh, I know that obviously none of this feels normal or uh, I'm going to assume that nothing has really felt normal uh, when you've been in the building but was there anything like more bizarre about about how things things felt for this one in a was it equally bizarre I mean what was that what was the temperature in there so I think people were really enjoying themselves for most the night you know strange like Vanderbilt had one lead the whole game it was two to zero um, and then Florida scored nine points. They made three threes. Those were their first three baskets. And, uh, you know, never really, they didn't trail again. I think Vanderbilt got within one possession one other time, uh, at some point in the first half. And that was really it. Like, so Florida had this comfortable lead. And I think when Florida got up 57, 35 with around, 10 and a half minutes to go. The vibe in the building was, it, it was kind of noisy. Like people were kind of having some fun and like, Oh man, look at, look at Florida blowing out a team that they could probably blow out. And then, uh, you know, it was interesting. Like it was one of those noisy where like people aren't paying as much attention. It's like the game's out of hand. You're just talking to people and then uh, Vanderbilt started making shots and Florida stopped playing defense. And that's when there was like this nervous energy in the building for the first time all night. You know, whereas it was kind of like people came to watch a glorified scrimmage expecting uh, Florida to win. Um, so that was that was kind of the vibe in the building. Not a very loud building compared to the last game that I was at, uh, where you actually had a little energy in the crowd uh, until the very end. And, and even then it was just nervous noise. Well, it really was a bizarre comeback by Vanderbilt, especially in the sense that it wasn't like they hit three threes on three straight possessions and or, or two turnovers turn into two buckets and then they hit a three. Uh, they just kind of chipped away for like, like a number one moment where they just exploded for. Uh, it was really they just they just chiseled away. And, and I mean, uh, that almost makes it feel like it was like 
more of a slip for, from the Gators, just because again, like sometimes you are prone to, uh, you are prone to in the game of basketball where there's a three point line, you know, someone hits a couple threes in a row, maybe you turn it over, it ends up a couple threes in a row. Uh, it kind of happens, but th- this was no, uh, I guess, fluke. I mean, it was no real fluke. Vanderbilt just truly outplayed them for a large stretch. And it also wasn't like Florida had totally thrown in the towel. It it wasn't like it was uh, all Florida's end of bench guys. I mean, they had their, their starters out for, for a lot of it. Um, Yes. There was a, you you know, Quez Glover was in there for a bit. Um, Bruce Hensev was in there for a bit. bit. Tobo was there for a bit, but it certainly wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like both teams threw in the towel and, uh, or put up the white flag and suddenly it was Florida's uh, bench out there. I mean, it was, it was Scotty Lewis and it was Trey Mann and it was, it was Colin Castleton. I mean, these guys were, uh, were getting just beat straight up. And there was one point where I was just like, man, like, obviously I, desperately want the Gators to win but man this would be objectively incredible if, if Vanderbilt came back I'm certainly glad they didn't but man Scotty Pippen is incredible uh, and they they put on one one heck of a show almost uh, almost coming back in that one yeah I mean look Scotty Pippen is maybe it was funny so I had two takes on Scotty Pippen that I wrote down for our preview and one was I said that other than Cameron Thomas I didn't think there was as good a scorer in the SEC And then my other take was for somebody named Pippen, he's terrible at defense. Well, he's a little bit better defensively than I thought, or at least, at least was Wednesday night uh, because he was active in passing lanes and kind of reads the game really well um, on both ends. And I now think that he is the best scorer in the SEC and he just doesn't really get discussed because Vanderbilt doesn't win games. Yeah, I mean, when you see the difference between um, Cam Thomas's teammates and Scottie Pippen's teammates, uh, man, uh, if you put Scottie Pippen with a with a little bit more floor spacing, uh, with some of the uh, some of the players that LSU has, uh, I think he'd be even even more incredible. Like I, I just couldn't believe Scottie Pippen where where Florida's trying to trap him. Um, they're really trying to take the ball out of his hands and it just, it just didn't seem to matter. He just kept getting into space and scoring, whether it was getting into the paint, whether it's finishing in the mid range, whether it's pulling up from three, uh, man, he just, he just torched Florida. It was, it was an incredible performance. And I, I think Cam Thomas has a little bit more flash to him as, as well as, you, you you know, you mentioned that because he plays for a better team, he'll get a little bit more attention. I also think Cam Thomas seems to have a bit more just like flash to his game, but, but Scotty Pippen, I mean, it just seemed like there was times where I was like, okay, he's, he's been good, but like almost quiet. And then I looked up and I'm like, oh man, he has like 18 points right now. And it's like, not even, not that much into the game. And, and, and I feel like every time I watch Scott Pippen, it's, it's, it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit of just like, oh, like, I don't feel like he's demanding the basketball. I don't think he's going off, but I'm like, oh man, he's got a whole lot of points. And I, and it was just crazy too, that, that last bucket he got uh, off an offensive rebound. It was where, where Florida just like would not let him catch the ball. Uh, and we're trying to let, let someone else beat them. And it was just like, man, he just, he has a man. He's a magnet, man. The ball just finds energy and the ball finds good players. And he even found himself uh, with an offensive rebound there. So, uh, yeah, just a really incredible game by him. Yeah, I mean, he had six turnovers. But when your usage rate is as high as his is, it's like that's not terrible. Um, And, like, I really thought he only made one. There was only one possession. And I think I texted you about it where I was like, that was a curious decision. Like, he makes smart decisions in offense. Um you know, the one decision he made that I thought was weird was at the end of the first half, Jerry Stackhouse gets a switch he wants with Pippen on uh, Jason Chitobo. And I was just stunned because of how easily Pippen had, was getting into the lane uh, that he elected to just back up and, and shoot over Chitobo. I thought that was weird. 
But otherwise, uh, you know, he makes so many good decisions and just has such a nose for the ball that, I mean, the play you're referencing uh, or, or shortly thereafter where Pippen ends up getting a putback because, you know, he just reads things so well and, and fights for a loose ball after a shot. I mean, that, you know, he's, he's a special player. Uh, it's not just his ability to create and score. It's how he reads the game, I think. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, I know you texted me about that uh, that one play at the end of the first half. Uh, I mean, I thought that, like, like watching it, uh, I just thought, you know, as soon as he got the ball, every Gator took three strides towards the paint as soon okay. as he got on, on Jatobo. And I, I thought everyone was sitting in the gas, and uh, I didn't think he was going to be able to drive. I thought Florida was like, hey, if you want to drive and kick to whoever, I think they're ready to give that up. So so I, I, I will give him a bit of a pass. So, I mean, maybe you'd like to see him, you know, I'd rather – one of those gaps try to attract some help from florida and uh and dish it out to one of their other shooters uh but i do think florida definitely packed it into the gaps which um looks to be a little bit more of how florida is uh, deciding to play defense trying to play in the gaps a little bit more and, and help out on drives and uh man i i'd say uh when you get torched like a player like scotty pippen i mean scotty pippen is excellent don't get me wrong but another example man florida just doesn't have the lockdown guys on the perimeter and and i know like you know, I know Scotty Lewis is coming off a break. I know that Coach White said, you know, he had no idea where his cardio was going to be. He ended up playing Mike, or sorry, he ended up playing Scotty Lewis a lot more minutes than he expected. So, like, maybe, maybe tired legs played played some role. But I mean, you know, people who listen to the podcast know that I'm not super super high on Scotty Lewis as a defender. But man, Pippen had zero respect for Scotty Lewis as a defender. Um, just the way that he went at him over and over again. And there was a couple of times, uh, and this is especially where I realized I'm like, man, he has no respect for Scotty Lewis as a defender where Pippen was looked at, looked at him, tried to drive to his right hand and Lewis, like mostly cut it off. Pippen probably could have, could have went by if he wanted to. And then Pippen just backed up, backed up, backed up and then attacked to the same right hand and just blew by Scotty Lewis. And that's why I'm like, man, he has, he has no respect for, for Lewis when he <laughs> kind of took, took the temperature was like, Oh yeah, I can do this backs out and just drives to his dominant hand and gets all the way to the hoop. So uh, yeah, again, I, I just think that it was another example where, yeah, I think Florida's going to have to sit in the gaps because they just do not have the guys to, to guard at a high level one-on-one against, against really good scores. Yeah, they seem to not have the guys to do that. And then, you know, like a couple of the guys that you would think would be helpful in that capacity uh, didn't either weren't on the floor enough last night uh, in Trey Mann, one of Florida's, you know, more talented defenders, I think. Uh, and then uh, you know, only 23 minutes. And then I don't – it's very confusing to me what the staff is doing with the freshmen. Um you know, Niles Lane, again, you would think when you play a more offensively charged team uh, that doesn't defend particularly well, that would be a good matchup for Niles Lane, who they appear to have some questions about what he can contribute offensively, but he's clearly a very fundamentally sound defender. I mean, like, if you watch him in terms of fundamentally how he defends and how he stays on two feet, how he moves laterally, you know, there's an argument that he does a lot of that stuff better than Scotty Lewis, in my opinion, Eric. And uh, obviously he doesn't add what Scotty does on the offensive side. Florida really needed some buckets from Scotty in the first half yesterday and got him. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of confused. There's no real rhyme or rhythm or reason to what Florida's doing with the freshmen. And I think that's somewhat curious because freshmen tend to need – 
minutes to gain confidence and establish a, a sort of rhythm to their their uh, freshman seasons hasn't really happened with Florida. I think some of that, obviously, COVID-related. You didn't get the non-conference schedule. You're in conference play. The whole idea is to win games. But it's still kind of curious to me, especially against a team like Vanderbilt. Yeah, I mean, I wonder what that does for how, how Lane is feeling about himself, just because, man, if you can't get in against uh, the worst team in the conference, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that can hurt. But I mean, man, I, I bet that uh, Florida thought that they were going to probably win that game by 20, like it was looking like they were going to. And maybe White was like, yeah, we can get him in in the, the final minutes. I mean, uh, like you said, I mean, I don't even think it was, should have waited for, for garbage time to get him in. I thought it would have been interesting to see him, uh, uh, yeah, to, to see him in in. in real minutes in that game give him a real opportunity to try to stop someone that no one else was was capable of stopping so uh could lane have done any worse i mean i <laughs> maybe but uh i don't know man i think uh Scotty pippen went off about um as as well as you know it's his career high i, I yeah I, I, I think lane could have done a little bit better i think like you said there's um you could certainly argue that, that lane is a better better defender um and the, the other thing too is um, probably you can make a case, and I, I I don't actually know if I believe this, but there's a chance that, of course, Lewis as the uh, as the older player, maybe he's a little bit better in rotations, in communication, um, in his off ball defense. But like, man, you need a smart rotation communications guy. You need someone who can keep their feet in front of a really good score. So to me, it's like even if if Lane is behind as a as a help side defender, or or maybe he's slow on rotation sometimes, like some to be the help defender he's the primary guy uh so yeah i would have liked to see that lineup and um pivoting a little bit uh how about trey man who starts the game um looking really good offensive picks up two fouls florida start suddenly starts to uh play poorly while trey man is is on the bench for all of the first half um so you know foul trouble man it'll really kill you so uh Oh wait, what's this? Trey Mann finished the game with two personal fouls. So uh, it's like, wow, I'm really, you know, it's another situation where I'm just like, Trey Mann took the full penalty of fouling out. I just, it just continues to just get me why coaches do this. Mike White is far from the only coach who does this, but uh, Trey Mann gets absolutely, you know, stapled to the bench. Um, Florida really, really suffers in the first half. I know they take a eight point lead to the to the half, but. It, it was just some some shot making right at the end. Um, I just thought Florida was looking pretty lost offensively. Even like you said, Neil, maybe he was the best option defensively uh, to play Scotty Pippen Jr. Um, and he was on the bench with two fouls, and he ends up uh, he ends up finishing the game with two fouls. So I just have to wonder if Trey Mann plays his regular 35, 36, 37 minutes as opposed to twenty three. Uh, maybe we're not sweating it out in the final possessions. Yeah, I thought the first. So they call the first foul. They were almost identical fouls. They're just man trying to make a play on defense. Uh, I thought the second decision on by man, he was later than on the second one than the first one, at least from inside the building, maybe on TV. It looked really similar. I don't know. Uh, to me, I wouldn't have gambled the way he did on the second one. Not, not the best decision by man. I, I'm with you. And let me explain, you know, let me add to your thought by saying this, like Florida, Mike White played Keontae Johnson with two first half fouls early in the season against Army uh, and Boston College, and the move paid off. Um, although in one, he did pick up a third first half foul, but, but you know, it paid off in the other game. Um, what I'll say is that's a reflection of trust. And if you're going to play Trey Mann 39 minutes in a game like he did against Georgia, 
then you clearly don't have trust issues with Trey Mann. Like, so, you know, why is he not out there? And particularly because the way that Vandy defended pick and rolls really caused some, some problems for Florida in the first half because their normal pick and roll stuff wasn't necessarily available. And so they needed Tyree Appleby and Trey Mann to get into lanes, create space, uh, find, you know, open players from help or uh, hit shots. And, and that didn't happen. And they needed them even more when Colin Castleton picked up a second foul. So, uh, and Anthony Derushi mysteriously plays seven minutes. I guess they didn't like the way he matched up with Vanderbilt or something. Uh, just, just some confusing uh, personnel decisions, I thought, contributed to uh, kind of a ragged performance. Uh, yeah, it was a little slow for Derushi to get into the game. Um, there's a few subs ahead of him. I know was ahead of him for sure, which is... I really thought, I, I, I mean, I thought Anthony Drugy was, was very poor in this game. I, I thought he gave some some bad minutes when he was in there. Um, yes, he hit his two yeah. uh, pull-up jumpers off the dribble, um, but uh, he contend not to see those shots again. Good for him for hitting them, but uh, <laughs> man. Uh, yeah, so I didn't think he looked great, but uh, uh, no. yeah, yeah, you mentioned even Florida's, uh, the way that Florida struggled to handle uh, Vanderbilt's <laughs> Vanderbilt's yeah. defense, which once again, same way that Vanderbilt has played defense the last two years under Jerry Sackhouse. They've iced side ball screens uh, where they do not let the ball handler get to the middle of the floor. The the player guarding the ball handler will step up, go above the level of the ball handler, and just force him down, funnel him down the sideline, and just will not. Where he uh, he punched the ball out of Tyree Appleby's hands because he was still trying to force middle, even though it was not there, um, turned into a backcourt violation. Uh, and then and there was uh, Noah Locke, who predictably got trapped and threw a pick six, then ended up a, a layup on the other end. So, or, or a dunk. And uh, yeah, I, again, I just was, uh, you know, I've watched Vanderbilt for the last two years. Uh, we all have. And, and uh, they've ice side ball screens and they've, and then they've downed or played drop coverage on, on middle ball screens where uh, the coverage that, you know, you and me would love to see, Neil, where uh, they chase over the top and then their, their big man sags drops down to the nail and just uh, tries to yeah. goat the Gators into some mid range shots, which is especially a good strategy against the Gators who are very happy to take mid range shots and floaters. Um, so uh, yeah, I just thought that, uh, what they wanted to do was was to trap Florida's ball handlers on sideline, um, or or yeah, on, on side pick and rolls, and then on middle uh, middle pick and rolls, they wanted Florida to shoot mid range jumpers and and floaters. And and what did Florida do? They allowed themselves to get trapped by the the ice the icing of ball screens, and then they uh, took a bunch of floaters and and mid range shots. So uh, yeah, it was another like I don't know if we want to call it an execution thing. I don't know if we want to call it a a, a scouting thing, but I I just. Uh, was prepared for the way that Vanderbilt uh, Vanderbilt played ball screen defense, which again for uh, for the second time you see him in a season, it's uh, yeah, it's a little rough. Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe you get lulled into that sense of overconfidence too, because you played really well against them the first time you played. You know, I mean, who knows? Uh, but but yeah, I mean, Florida, you know, Florida. So I, I, that's one thing I was thinking in the building. I was like, I wonder if Eric is pleased that Florida launched twenty three three pointers, which was. Uh, the second most they fired in a game this season, Eric. Um, but at the same time, I was like, he had to grimace at, at a few of the times, particularly when uh, Noah Locke decided he was going to fall in love with his uh, mid-range two-point jump shot yesterday and his floater. 
uh, to the tune of four for 12. Noah was three for seven from the outside. He was one for five inside, and all five of those shots were in the floater or mid-range jumper variety. Um, he also had one where he had a layup, mishandled the pass, and then traveled while taking a fadeaway mid-range jump shot, <laughs> um, which had me laughing and had the people next to me staring at me like, why is he laughing at that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I guess probably not Florida basketball listeners that would understand why that was so funny to me. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just some curious shot selection. I guess what I'm getting at is is not the best game. And I did mention the seven minutes for Anthony DeRuji. Let me point out, Eric, that that I wasn't – defending the way he played. And I think his seven minutes may have been a reflection of the staff saying, whoa, you are not, you're not locked in tonight. Whereas one guy I wanted to praise on the show was Osayo Sifo, who I thought uh, had an excellent game. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought he was pretty good. I mean, I, I did think it was kind of funny that there were some people taking, you know, victory laps on, on Twitter regarding the play of Osayo Sifo after he, you know, gets, Two uncontested layups uh, against the worst high major defense in the country where they just were trying to trap. He sat by the defense, which, hey, which is great. Don't get me wrong. But there were some people right. that were like, see, see, Eric, uh, because, of course, I'm, you know, I was the one shorting Osai Osipo stock. Um, we'll see if that uh, comes out to, to bite me. But, uh, yeah, I just uh, yeah, I, I definitely thought he was good. There's 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 no question. Um, I do think a lot of his minutes came when the game was kind of out of reach. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I do think is kind of interesting. Uh, this, so this is kind of funny. So, so Osayo Sifo is actually uh, he's, he he actually has a plus, uh, a very actually favorable um, net rating now for his on-off numbers. He's got a plus twelve net rating for all his minutes. Um, as a, for and I thought that was uh, pretty interesting that he has a plus twelve net rating when he's on the floor. Um, however, I looked a little bit deeper and I saw that in uh, in the first halves of games he has a minus nine net rating. So that's usually uh, when uh, you know when he's playing relevant minutes against uh, uh, when when a game is still uh, still close because it's the first half. So he's minus nine. Um, and then I went into uh, the second half and I wanted to see how we did in second half minutes. And uh, to do that, I used my you know tool, my f- friends at Pivot Analysis have uh, where you can eliminate garbage time where the game is more than 15 points out of reach. Uh, and I was shocked to see that Osayo Sifo has not played a single minute this season in the second half where the game is more than or is, is, is less than 15 points. So, yes, he had a good you know, good couple minutes. Um, and that's great. It's, it's good to see that, but he is still yet to show it in, in minutes that matter against, against, you know, teams that matter. You know, we had some good moments against Tennessee. The game was out of reach, had some good minutes against Vanderbilt. The game was, uh, uh, was out of reach, but luckily, I mean, Hey, Osifo wasn't a part of any of the lineups that, uh, uh, that really hurt the Gators. So that's good. But, uh, yeah, that's just a little response to the people who were like, see, Eric, you were so wrong about Osifo. He had two uncontested layups against Vanderbilt, uh, when the game was 20 points. So that, that's a little bit bit of my response, but not trying to tear the guy down. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely <laughs> had some good moments, and uh, I still do like him as, uh, you, you know, the way he moves his feet on defense. Um, it's interesting. I mean, he's he's not going to find himself in too many um, key, like, you know, if he plays the power forward position for the Gators, which he has been, uh, it's not often he's going to uh, be playing the other team's, you know, best perimeter score, uh, but man, whenever another another team's foreman catches the ball and tries to dribble against Osifo, I mean, he just, uh, he seems to lock him down pretty good. So definitely, uh, yeah, definitely some nice looks from him. Yeah, I mean, he swallows people up, uh, whether it's a three or a four, when he does get drawn away from the basket, he does move his feet really well. I sent a tweet about it because 
he was on the floor. A few of his minutes were on the floor during Florida's most dominant stretch of defense in the game, which was that nine and a half minute period to open the second half where Vanderbilt scored only six points. Osifo played five of those minutes. Um, but I think that obviously the, the Vanderbilt comeback also starts with Osifo still on the floor. Um, you know, and, and when you get a couple steals and, and I like the way that he contributes to Florida on the glass, uh, as well. So, you know, I think he does little things again. I'm with you. I'm not going to get real excited about him, uh, beating a trap to make uncontested layups, uh, or layups over guards. uh, I guess the second one, like that's, that's not going to impress me as much, but, uh, certainly you're seeing what he offers this team defensively and Florida needs that, uh, because, you know, the, the, what this defense kind of is right now is a group that seems to lock in for periods of games, but then has these stretches where they still hemorrhage baskets. And we've seen it uh, in, in multiple games now with really the exception of the Tennessee game in the last four games, Eric, where they've had these stretches where the other team just seems like Florida can't get a stop. Yeah, I mean it's it's a couple of things. It's it's the fact that I I just don't think that that Florida has great point of attack defenders, and that's just that's just tough when it almost seems like every defensive possession you have, you're you're kind of starting, you kind of know that you're going to start the possession scrambling. Like if you do not have someone that you can be relatively certain can can guard the ball one on one, well, there's probably going to be penetration, and you're probably going to find yourself in rotation from um, from that first possession. And uh, I just think that's kind of what happened a little bit last night. Um, of course. Uh, uh, Florida's pick and roll defense um, still not great. Uh, I thought that they were a little bit better against uh, against Vanderbilt than uh, this time around than they have been the last couple of games, and and certainly how they did uh, the 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 past the past game against Vanderbilt. Uh, but again, they're just they're just not great, and and that's something that I think is going to continue to hurt the Gators if they don't get better at pick and roll defense. Because the fact of the matter is, I like I don't care who Florida's playing. Insert any team. Insert um, whether it's one of the clutch games at the end of the SEC season, whether it's the SEC tournament, if they play one, whether it's a postseason tournament, if there is a close game in the last couple of minutes, I I can guarantee you a team's going to run pick and roll because that's what happens in modern basketball. And if Florida continues to struggle guarding pick and rolls, well, it's uh, man, they're going to put themselves in some, some tough spots. Yeah, they are going to put themselves in some tough spots. Another way they might put themselves into tough spots is uh, how they deal with other teams when other teams trap the basketball and ice uh, screens. And and so, uh, you know, was that deeply concerning to you or, or do you think that was uh, sort of just a product of, of not necessarily having your primary ball handler or maybe your, your best ball handler and Trey man on the floor uh, for – for as much of the game as we've seen uh, previously because of foul trouble. Yeah. I mean, I, I just get concerned by that kind of stuff when you, you know, the Vanderbilt's going to do it and it just seems like they had no, they had no answer for it. Uh, they just didn't right. seem prepared for it. So, I mean, so, I mean that, that bothers me um, running using, using Noah Locke as a ball handler, when you know, you're facing that style of defense while you have Tyree Appleby on the floor. Uh, that's concerning to me as well. 
Um, especially because this um, uh, this side uh, th- this pick and roll set that they use, where they do a, a sideline um, pick and roll, uh, it's usually Noah Locke gives away the ball um, to another guard that's going to run it, and then he gets like a flare screen to the opposite corner, and, and there's oftentimes a uh, um, oftentimes a, th- a catch and shoot three point attempt for uh, for Noah Locke. I, I really like it; it's a really good set for him. That was actually another thing about about Osayo Sifo that I thought was quite funny was uh, uh, so, so they run the set where Noah gives the ball off to the other guard um, for a side sideline um pick and roll he gets a flare screen from uh, uh from one of the big men as he flares to the opposite corner and like there was two times where osayo sifo which is just like one of my pet peeves uh where he just like screened air like he didn't headhunt noah locks man he just was just like oh i know the play design is for me to set a screen around this part of the floor so he just like went into his uh his stance to, to set a screen and he just set a screen on absolute air um and and you could tell that uh that trey man was looking for uh looking for the flare to uh to lock and it just wasn't there because osio sifo didn't screen anyone and um the play broke down but anyways uh so so for florida to design that play with noah lock as as your ball handler i just that that just doesn't make sense to me and it's one of the things about college basketball that's just still so different than um then the NBA, you know, like before this podcast, I'm watching the Heat play the Clippers, and I'm like, man, you know who I've never once in my life see run a run a pick and roll? Duncan Robinson. You know, I watched the Pelicans the other day. Have I ever seen in my entire life of watching JJ Redick play basketball on multiple franchises? Have I ever seen him run a uh, pick and roll? Uh, no, like it's just it's just it's just such a difference between uh, the NBA and the college game where it's uh, there's something that's a little bit more like equal opportunity about uh, about the college game, and I, I just kind of wish it was like, man, I I think that like. Maybe I'm exaggerating here, but maybe I'm not. Like, I kind of think that 100% of Florida's pick and roll should be ran by one of uh, Trey Mann, Tyree Appleby, or, or even Quez Glover. Yeah, it's strange, uh, to say the least. Um, Florida had also another timeout that they came out of. Actually, it was interesting because it was it was when – I think it was 50 – it was either 57-44 or 56-44 when White – no, you know what? It was 57-45 when White called the uh, the timeout. Vanderbilt had cut it to 12, and Vanderbilt had scored on about four straight – yeah, it was four straight possessions, and White called a timeout to yell at the team about defense. And Florida came out and ran a nice set for Noah, who hit a three. Um, but that's the kind of set that you would think they would run, not the one that Eric is referencing. It's like, I get that you want to get your best shooter a shot, but uh, maybe not – in that way. Ah, uh, no, I, I just rather not. So, I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier, do I like to see that many threes from, from Florida? Yeah. I thought that was, that was awesome. I mean, in a game where you're hitting over 40% of your threes to get um, 23 of them off. Uh, yeah. That's uh yeah, that's, that's great. That's exactly what you're looking for. And I mean, even a game where, uh, uh, you know, Scotty Lewis had a couple looks of good ones and, and he missed them. But I mean, other than that, everyone else was, uh, was shooting well, including, uh, Rusensev in his short minutes, um, would like to not see that shot selection from Daruji, but Hey, it's a, uh, he did hit it. So, uh, man, I think Florida's three point shooting has just been incredible this year. It's, it's, it's just crazy. I just would have never. I, w- I would have guessed that they would have been a, a lot more of like a volume three-point shooting team and not right. had as good a percentage. Um, but they've obviously uh, shot a little pure, but it's uh, it's meant some more um, some more makes. They're 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 taking good shots from from three. Sometimes I I think they should shoot um, shoot a little bit more. Like it, which is kind of funny. I mean, so Florida hits forty-four percent of their threes in this game. There's like part of me that's like 
I kind of feel like a team should never shoot over 40% from three, if that makes sense, because I kind of think that when they're at like 45 or 50% from three, um, they should start drawing things up and letting them fly. Uh, which is like, I don't fully believe that take, but like, um, man, I, you know, it's, it's something like you see from Alabama right now. I mean, they're, they're letting them fly. Like they're not looking to, sh- they're not looking to shoot 44% from three. They're looking to shoot 37% from three and get as many as possible. So a couple of different ways, but I mean, Hey, as, as an overall for Florida to go 10 for t- 10 for 23, that's, that's awesome. The one guy I think should shoot more threes is Trey man. Thoughts on that take. Uh, I mean, Good ab- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. He's shooting. I forgot he's what he's at now. 40, I mean, he entered the game. Hitting, or sorry, sorry. What I was gonna say is he's shooting. He was shooting 42 percent on his uh, on his off the dribble threes, which is an okay. absolutely ridiculous number. Um, <laughs> for like that that like that's truly like going to if he kind of like keeps that up roughly like like i think like marcus howard who is known as like the god of shooting off the dribble i mean he was at like 36 37 percent most of his career of course he did that for like four seasons so that's you know trey man's looking at half a season so far but like to see to see that man is is shooting the way he has does off the dribble like man i'm not totally saying that they that he should be like trey young right now but like you know, he hits two shots off the dribble. I, I I would be totally fine with him taking seven or eight shots off the dribble in a game from three. Like if he's going to shoot the ball that way, um, I, I definitely think he should just straight up take more threes off the dribble. I mean, um, you know, we talk about analytics. I mean, analytics is all about putting your players in the best, uh, the best position to win and take the most efficient shots. Well, right now him shooting off the dribble is arguably the most efficient shot in college basketball um getting probably after last night being somewhere around 45 percent on three-point shots off the dribble uh man that's that's incredible efficiency I, i'd love to see him take more and i don't know if that's even what you were referring to i do think no. that sometimes he even passes up catch and shoot opportunities which is probably what you're alluding to but yeah i'd love to see him shoot the ball more you know i actually kind of like in my head when i was saying that i was kind of thinking of off the dribble ones like i'd rather have him take an off the dribble triple than all these catch and release ones that Anthony Deruji likes to take. And here's the other thing about the Deruji threes, because Deruji's shooting 31%, which isn't terrible. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if I like his volume. A lot of Anthony's threes are like, let me take a couple dribbles and think about it threes. And, you know, you and I have discussed on the podcast that there's actually like pretty good basketball math that says those don't go in that much. No, it's, it's, it's uh, totally true. And you, you know, you look at that percent, I haven't looked at it, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to venture a guess and say that if uh, Daruji were to eliminate some of those shots off the three or sorry, off the dribble, he's probably somewhere like a 34% three point shooter. And that's kind of approaching, uh, approaching the average. So uh, yeah, it looks like, so Trey man's up to 44% um, on threes off the dribble and he shot 36 (laughs) of them. So it's not, that's not a tiny sample. So man, I, I, I really think he should be, he should be letting those fly. And uh, uh, yeah, obviously lets those fly a little bit more. Those numbers are going to go down. Yes. But man, if you're anywhere above, like for it to be a good shot for the Gators, he needs to shoot anywhere like, you know, above if he shoots 34% on those shots, that's a good shot for the Gators. So uh, he's shown he can hit them at a 45% clip. He's got some room to to lower the effectiveness while putting up a lot more volume or, or yeah, a lot more volume. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think it'd be I, I, Trey man going Trey young for a game. I, I would be interested to see it. <laughs> yeah, I kind of would too. The other thing that needs to stop is the Noah lock mid range jumper game. What do you think Noah locks? effective field goal percentage is eric effective field goal percentage i mean i yeah. still 
think that he's, I still would think that because of the amount of threes he takes, um, it's going to be quite high, uh, effective field goal percentage for, uh, I mean, I'd have to guess he's still around 55% just because of the, the amount of threes he takes in his efficiency. All right. And what do you think his, what do you think the difference is between his two point percentage and his three point percentage to finish the thought experiment? Um, I think if he was around 41% going into the other night, uh, as from two, I mean, man, he had, I think he was below 30 in his last couple of seasons. I think he's got a little bit better. He had his, you know, now famous layup against E Ponzing at Tennessee. Uh, I, I think he's at like 44, 45% from two point range. Okay. So he is a 40% two point shooter and he's at 40.5 on three pointers. For okay. an effective field goal percentage of 53, which is a really good uh, shout on your part. But um, look, when your three-point percentage is, if you go to the third decimal higher than your two-point percentage, you probably should discover the art of the take a dribble to your side and shoot the three instead of take two dribbles inside and shoot an 18-foot jump shot. By the way, I bet you that Noah makes more of the like squared up 18 foot jump shots than the floaters, but I haven't gone full Eric Fawcett and done the the math on it yet. Uh, no, that's actually very accurate. I did do the math on that earlier. Um, <laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, this is actually what's uh, okay. This is what's crazy. This is uh, this is the essence of why I don't like floaters. So um, I'm going to tell you his, his percentage on, on floaters. I just want you to give a, a general reaction to it. So he is okay. shooting 33% on floaters. So what is, what is your reaction to that number? It's, you're obviously not, you're not very stoked on that number. The um, noise well, I made. Um, so he is an, and, and that is the dead accurate, that is the national average of floaters. That is what the, that is the national, the, the average right now on floaters across the country is 33%. So Noah Locke is an average floater shooter, but that percentage is that bad. So like that, that again is why I just like, that's why I harp on floaters. It's like Noah Locke isn't even bad at shooting floaters. He's an average floater shooter and the percentage is bad. So yeah, you're just, you're, it's, it's a bad, it's a bad shot. You know, like that's, uh, that's why it's, uh, um, if, if I were to tell you, oh, Noah Locke is an average floater shooter, you'd probably be like, okay, well, you know, that's good. But, the, but when I tell you the percentage, that's when you're like, ugh, that's, that's kind of ugly. Um, so of course, yeah, he's at 33%. Um, and he's actually hitting 41% of his mid range jumpers. So which is actually a, a pretty good number. Um, but it definitely, you know, 41%, uh, that is, uh, that's uh, significantly higher than, than 33%. So yes, Noah Locke <laughs> would be much better eliminating every floater he takes and instead stopping, getting on balance, putting two feet on the ground and, um, and, and shooting a pull-up jumper. There, there you go. I, um, so the last thing I want to address on the Vanderbilt game was the starting lineup in Florida going with the two bigs, um, and then neither of them score until the 25th minute of the game. Any any chance that concerns you uh, about you know the viability of that moving forward, or are you like me and still pretty convinced that that lineup is the best way for Florida to play? What, despite the fact that neither of those guys scored, that lineup murdered people. Um, they have a plus 30 net rating now um, with those two on the floor. Um, that's I, and again, that's a pretty small sample size, but. In that small sample size, they they've murdered other teams, and they haven't even been good, like you mentioned. You know what I mean? Like, um, you don't watch those minutes and be like, oh, they just hammered other teams. But um, 
when you put the two bigs together, it's worked really well. And I mean, hey, color me shocked that the lineup that is closest to the lineup that was Florida's best last year worked really well. I mean, yeah, I'm <laughs> shocking. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought that was pretty good. I, I thought that there was a couple curious things. Like they ran a play that was like a high low feed from big to big. Uh, My interpretation of that would be you should have Colin Castleton, the better passer, throw it into Omar Payne, who is excellent at sealing guys for a position. Yeah, he's a little smaller than, than Castleton, doesn't have quite as good hands. Um, I think, uh, well, I'll say Castleton is a better finisher. I don't know what you think, Neil, um, but I don't think it's a cavernous change between the two cast is a little better touch uh pain a little more explosive uh but there anyways there was a play that they ran that was omar Payne throwing a high low feed to uh to con castleton it was a tough pass it turned into a turnover and I, i'd probably prefer castleton be the passer in that situation i mean that's a little bit of a tough window to throw into um so that wasn't great um it still seemed like they were definitely trying to figure out um a little bit of their their rhythm playing two bigs um and even there was uh, times when it was Colin castleton and osio sifo in the second half where i I still felt like everyone was kind of learning the spacing a little bit. Um, but man, like that, I, I would say that's how I feel like I, I, I think Florida played great with two bigs last season. Uh, they have already shown that playing the two bigs together um, looks good this year. And they didn't even, you know, they didn't play very crisp. It still felt like they were figuring things out. And that lineup still was by far and away Florida's best lineup. So uh, yeah, big believer in the two bigs. Um, I hope they, uh, hope they keep it up. Um, they got three points on two horn sets early in the game that made me really happy and then never ran them again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keeping that, keeping that in the back pocket for uh, West Virginia, I guess. I guess. I, I mean, it was, it was beautiful though. I mean, you get Castleton and Payne to, to come up to the elbow. You get, actually they ran one for Appleby and one for men where they do the dribble handoff and then, uh, Man or Appleby come around the horns and downhill. Uh, and boy, when it was Trey Man doing it, it looked gorgeous because, you know, I don't know. It's just Trey is kind of a pretty basketball player. <laughs> and and uh, I got so excited. I'm like, oh, my God, I think I texted you. Horn sets <laughs> with like nothing else in the text. <laughs> and uh, they didn't run it again the whole game, at least on my rewatch that I saw. Yeah, I'll be interested. There's a, there's a couple plays that Florida has ran like a couple of times and like haven't we haven't seen it since. Uh, there was the one elevator screen that for Noah Locke that they like ran once went pretty disastrously. They never ran again, but I think it'd be very interesting for them to play. Um, they ran something called a punch strong, which is like uh, like a post punch, which like Golden State really popularized a couple of years ago. They ran it like twice against Ole Miss, and uh, uh, it's it's a good it's like a throw it into the post to then get a inside out three for Noah Locke. I thought it looked really good. They never got a three out of it, but I think it's a good set. So I'm hoping that it kind of like arises later. And and now you might add, uh, yeah, you might add the, uh, the some of these horn sets to the mix. But uh, def- definitely just seems like Florida's still kind of figuring out the uh, the playbook. I mean, I don't think we talked about it on the last podcast, Neil, or I forget when exactly this came out, but I mean, um, you know, White said in the press conference that, uh, that they were abandoning the dribble drive after selling out to yeah. it for five months, um, which was uh, something we could react to. Um, but yeah, it, it still seems like they're, they're figuring out their playbook. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I just think that for them to, for them to not really look crisp and still do really well with the, with the Colin Castle, and Omar Payne lineup, I just think once they, they kind of have it dialed in, it's going to be really good. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I just hope that we we see a couple of these, 
you know, new wrinkles and sets again because I, I like that elevator action. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of horns actions and was kind of surprised to to see them do it and then abandon it. I really wanted to see them try it with uh, Daruji at the four too. Um, but obviously, <laughs> Anthony, uh, like Eric said, wasn't bathing himself in glory. Um <laughs> Wednesday night, but you know what? He's had some good games, so hopefully he bounces back this weekend with the SEC Big 12 Challenge. Saturday, the Gators drew uh, the West Virginia Mountaineers, who are uh, top 15 outfit. They uh, I just saw them return to the athletic top 12 power rankings today. Um, a little bit different a Mountaineers team um, than you know, I think we're kind of accustomed to uh, Eric in the sense that they aren't necessarily led by their defense. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, they are very different than what you'd come to expect from West Virginia team. Uh, I mean, by the numbers and, and by the eye test as well, they like, they're an offense first basketball team, which um, I don't recall West Virginia ever being that like ever since the days that like maybe when they had Darius Nichols running the point that they were a little bit more, yeah. more offense under under beeline and transitioning into Huggins. But uh, yeah, these last couple of years, like West Virginia has been obviously known for the press and they've been uh, they've been known for their physicality, their rebounding. Uh, but it's always been one of those teams that like their offense has been very suspect and like often their their best offense was like a bad shot that they could go offensive rebound that. That was kind of the, the book on West Virginia. Yeah, that's not really the case. And I mean, they've, they've got a couple guys um, uh, that you just like don't look like your your stereotype West Virginia kind of guys. Like uh, the fact that he's went to um, uh, went to Sean McNeil and Jordan McCabe, two guys that are like don't have like aren't long, aren't great quick defenders um but are you know s- some some big time shot makers and and it's 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 kind of interesting to see bob Hub- bob huggins uh i like i i i guess modernize like just to say like you know what it's going to be tough if we just keep recruiting guys that are not great offensively and we just try to grind teams down defensively uh it's kind of yeah it's it's a little bit of a switch where yeah this is a this is an offense first basketball team yeah i mean they really are here's here's what's funny though you know and this just shows you if Alabama hasn't proved it enough, and if we haven't talked about it on a podcast enough, this just shows you the meaning of the three-point shot. What do you think West Virginia's field goal percentage, just pure field goal percentage, was as a team last year? Field goal percentage. Uh, I mean, I have, to, I have to be honest with you, Neil. I don't know if I've looked at a field goal percentage stat for any team in the country in the last five years. Um, but um, just I will say 45%. Okay, it was 42. What do you think their three-point percentage was, which I know is a stat you look at? <laughs> uh, their their, their three-point percentage last year, uh, they were brutal last year. I think I'll, I'll say they were like 30 on the nose. They were 28.5, which was good oh. for 300, 330th in America. So this year, they have a 42.9% field goal percentage, which is 0.3 higher than last year. But – if you look at their effective field goal percentage, it's far higher. And the reason for that, they're making threes. They're shooting 37% uh, from behind the arc this season. So uh, kind of goes to, to show you what that shot means, Eric. And and a couple of the guys that are making it at really high volumes are Tash Sherman uh, and then uh, Miles McBride, who, you know, uh, is a guy that we all, I think, out of Archbishop Muller in uh, Cincinnati, 
one of the big power basketball schools in Ohio. I think everybody thought that he was going to be a guy that could really score. Uh, you know, that's, that's what Bob Huggins recruited him for. Uh, but he shot 29% from deep last year. He's at 47 this season. What's different? Well, that's a, that's what I wonder because I mean him and then Taz Sherman as well are the two uh, the two good uh, three point shooters for uh, um, for West Virginia and uh, they both shot the ball poorly last year. So I kind of wonder, like you know, are those guys for real as shooters? Like they, I mean, we're definitely midway through the season and they've got a good number of attempts, but uh, but yeah, you watch them play a little bit more. It definitely seems like they're. Uh, uh, they're running a little bit more for for those guys. They're also playing a little bit more like four four out one in versus like the two bigs that they've been playing the last couple of years. Uh, but again, I just feel like he 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 takes good shots and 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 I feel like that's something. I'm sorry, I'm talking Miles McBride. Watching him play, he doesn't have a ton of attempts, but he just yeah he takes good shots. I mean that's the number one uh, that's the number one step for anyone to be a good shooter is is take good shots and um, that's the one thing about West Virginia that's actually kind of similar to Florida where they they don't take a a lot of three-point attempts um so they're not getting them up to uh just to put them up um they're waiting for the for the quality ones and yeah miles mcbride just a player who gets under control and when i was running through synergy looking at his makes they're all just like balanced feet underneath them um catch and shoot let her let her rip so uh we'll we'll, we'll see if we'll see if that continues because yeah him tash sherman two guys that uh, were pretty poor three-point shooters last year who have just caught fire so far this year so one thing that uh, a lot of people that have been uh, hitting us up and DMs have mentioned is, oh, oh well, it's not going to be so bad now because, uh, you know, one of those bigs is gone. What have you seen that's different with uh, the departure of the McDonald's All-American uh, and uh, All-Big 12 player from a year ago, uh, Oscar Shubway? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think he's a really good player. I, I really do think he's good. I'm not looking forward to playing him next year when he's at Kentucky. Like, that's just going to be annoying. Um <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I I do think again you you look at uh, uh, they 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 kind of played those two two I would say traditional centers him and Derek Culver um, just two monsters great shot blockers two elite re rebounders um, but you look at now that he's gone they're playing Jalen Bridges a lot more who's uh, a fresh and he's six foot seven um, he's a player that I think is uh, he's kind of bringing them a little bit more of course like um, playmaking where they can throw the ball to him and then run off dribble handoffs because he can take a dribble or two, which I don't think that they uh, particularly wanted. Um, uh, they wanted from, well, they don't want from Derek Culver and doesn't look like they wanted from Oscar Shibway. Um, so yeah, I, I just feel like it's a little bit more modern of an offense. I feel like, uh, I feel like they're getting a little bit more playmaking. And and again, when you've got guys like Miles McBride and, and Tash Sherman, who are great shooters, I think they'd rather get those guys off the ball a little bit more and allow them to catch and shoot. And uh, by putting another ball handler on the floor, you, you kind of get those guys on, on the weak side where the ball can be swung and, and they can shoot. Yeah, I think it has helped them offensively, as weird as that is to say. And, and you know, uh, part of the reason that he leaves, he, his minutes were down. I mean, they, they were playing him 20 minutes a game uh, through the first 10 games. And so, you know, Shoeboy departs. That's another interesting thing. Last season, West Virginia played 10 guys, 13 minutes or more. So they really, really rotated a ton. This team plays eight, that number, with the departure of Shoeboy. It's still a lot that play – more than 10 minutes. Um, but that's not 13 minutes or more. That's just 10 minutes or more. And they also have kind of gone away from the guy everybody thought would there be their point guard, Jordan McCabe. And now kind of ball handler by committee, Miles McBride. And you mentioned Sean McNeil, who probably is the only guy that they start usually that doesn't score particularly well, but he can 
created score. Yeah, Sean McNeil is like definitely the like, like he could definitely come out and score zero points against Florida and it wouldn't surprise me, or he could score 20, it wouldn't surprise me. Right. Uh, he's definitely the guy that uh, that runs a little bit, uh, a little bit hot and cold. But, uh, and the thing about, yeah, Sean McNeil and, uh, uh, sorry, Jordan McCabe is, yeah, guys that are, that don't, they don't have great like physical gifts. Like they're, they have kind of like short arms and are a little stubbier and like, it's just kind of funny. It's just like super, like not very, like not our stereotype West Virginia players. Uh, and I think part of that uh, too, that, uh, that has kind of changed the way that West Virginia has played is, is they're pressing way less than, than in the past. They're only pressing on 12% of their possessions. Um, and it's definitely not, anywhere near the like aggression and like looking for steals that that it's been in the uh the last couple of seasons they definitely used it to, to some good effect when they have needed to to really go crazy and, and try to get steals but um yeah it's it's a game where i'm like i i don't, I don't know how much they're gonna press florida like if they if they have those two guys um who aren't like great athletes and and florida has tyree appleby and trey man on the floor like I, I don't know like west virginia might not even try to press that much um or maybe they think they can trap like a noah Locke or or quest glover when he's on the floor like that'll be something interesting to see but yeah uh and also west virginia is playing some zone these last couple of games which is also like not a very west virginia e thing to do um since once again back in the days when when darris nichols was uh was manning the uh the one three one zone with uh with john beeline which was awesome back in the day uh so yeah just uh i i i love it. I mean, I think that styles are what makes college basketball interesting. The fact that there are such different styles. And then um, it's also makes it interesting when a team drastically changes their style. Yeah, they played a bunch of close games. And like uh, you'd expect from a veteran team, they've won a bunch of close games. Uh, they've also, you know, they, they, since uh, Shuboy left, they've lost two of the five games that they've had. But both of those were within five points and both of them to teams that are in the top 25, Oklahoma. Uh, away from home, and then Texas by two in Morgantown uh, a week, uh, a couple weekends ago. Um, they just came off a win against uh, Texas Tech, and you know, lest you think that they are just a shell of what, what West Virginia usually is, there's Derek Culver. <laughs> yes, he is an he is a uh, he's an archival look at what West Virginia has been these last couple of years he is a monster rebounder i mean i would say he's the best uh best rebounder i've seen in the in the in the country uh both on the and the defensive glass it's just uh just incredible i think he's still averaging over 10 rebounds a game which is like a tough thing to do in college basketball uh and he's also that uh that shot blocker that they can put in the backside if they do decide to press and they just know that um if it ends up like a two-on-one because their their press gets beat they've they've got him They've got him on the back line, ready to block shots and, and protect the rim. So he is definitely the most West Virginia E of the West Virginia players, and uh, I, I think he's just fantastic. I think he's just like just what you want from a center in uh, in modern basketball. I'm just glad that he's gotten out of Michael Okaru's shadow that, that he lived <laughs> so long at Brewster Academy. Um, no, seriously, he's going to be the biggest challenge. Um, pun probably intended. That uh, Colin Castleton and Omar Payne have had to deal with. Uh, the other thing is, so Florida's foul discipline like looked like it had improved uh, for a couple games, and then was just miserable against Vanderbilt, uh, mostly just because all they did was foul Scotty Pippen. Um, Culver finished 15th in the country last year in fouls drawn per game. Um, he is fourth in that category this season, Eric. Ooh. 
Well, it's certainly good that he's not a very good free throw shooter. Um, I think he's at fifty four percent. I mean, hey, I mean, Osifo, Osifo is like uh, I, he's at like ten fouls per forty minutes. Like, it's an incredible stat. If if they want to go hack a shack on Derek Culver, I, I would be interested to see it. Actually, it's something you don't really see in college basketball very often. Um, I think you might start to see it a little bit more. But in, in all seriousness, I think if Florida gets into the single bonus, they should they should go foul Derek Culver. Like like no exaggeration. Or or if if nothing else, if he gets the ball thrown to him on the inside, Florida's in the single single bonus and like. Anyone other than Colin Castleton is guarding him. I, I think they should wrap him up, send him to the line. Um, that's a great way to uh, to steal a possession potentially by by putting a terrible free throw shooter on the line. So um, I, I know Neil, you'd like to see less fouling from the Gators. I I know we all would, but uh, yeah, if ever if ever a time to foul, I, I would just there there'd be nothing that would warm my heart more on Saturday Saturday than for Florida to uh, to use the single bonus to foul Derek Culver. Oh sure, and you got Jason Jatobo and Osiah Sifo, so you've got ten fouls. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually wholly agree with you on this. And, and I think part of the reason is they're going to foul him anyway because that's what he does. He draws <laughs> a lot. He draws a lot of fouls. And you're not fourth in the country in, in that category for no reason. And it's not just because teams are hacking him. He's, he's really good at establishing position with his huge body and, uh, and, and getting drawing contact. And, and he's a pretty good finisher inside. Plays a lot of minutes. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a lot to deal with. It's going to be uh, a big challenge for for Florida in, in that uh, sense. You know, it's, it's just strange to talk about a West Virginia team that, that will come into the game in the top 20 offensively in, in Kimpom efficiency right there on the Bart Torvik metrics as well. Um, kind of outside of the top 25, which you almost never see from a Bob Huggins team on the defensive side, but uh, you know, the one thing that, that they also do that we haven't really mentioned is, is they just crush it on the glass, which has been uh, kind of the bugaboo for Florida and some of their losses. Yeah, it's true. And that is definitely another, like that, that is one classic West Virginia thing. There's no question. They've always been great on the, on the offensive glass. And uh, it's pretty interesting. Cause again, now that they, now that they are back down to just one big with, um, Chibwe uh, moving on is that uh, they don't play like a really like physically imposing guy at power forward. Like Jalen Bridges is six foot seven and 220 pounds. It's definitely like good size at the four. Uh, and then Emmett Matthews, a junior, six foot seven, 215. Um, good size, not great size at the four. And, and Asaboyan is, uh, you know, six foot seven, like 225 or 230. So, like, you know, good size at, at the four. None of those guys are like insane athletes, good athletes for sure. Um, but yeah, I find it just impressive that like that's that kind of shows that like the code they have of, of offensive rebounding and, and something that they certainly work on. The fact that, you know, it used to be, oh, they put up two, you know, two guys that are six foot 10, 250 pounds and athletic. Like, of course, they're going to go get every miss. Uh, but it's like, yeah, now they actually, you know, they, they have guards chipping in on the offensive glass. They um, they have guys that aren't super big at the four that uh, that are chipping in on the offensive glass, even though they aren't physically opposing. And, and that's just, I, I feel like when you can tell a team is is really good on the offensive glass. And, uh, um, and, and again, they've actually been able to offensive rebound against who's a really good a really solid rebounding team texas tech who's a good rebounding team kansas who's a good rebounding team like uh, so for florida i mean like man like i'd love to say oh i hope florida keeps them off the glass uh or off the they keep them off the offensive glass um you know that that would be great but it's almost like they just need to like limit the damage i think 
Yeah, I agree. It's got to be, and the guards have to contribute like they did against Tennessee. Like it's got to be a full team effort, bodying people up. I mean, you've got dudes like Gabe Asaboyan who had that season at Arkansas where he had more offensive rebounds than defensive rebounds. Um, <laughs> that's a real thing, dude. Um, <laughs> so like, those are the kind of guys that that are on their roster on their bench because, like you said, they don't really play a big four. But Asaboyan, uh, the Canadian. Is a big fella, uh, Isaiah Cottrell, um, the uh, kid from Vegas, uh, is kind of lanky but but real active. Um, so I mean they've got they've got those dudes. Uh, they haven't played Tash Fleet very much, uh, but another guy that that like has that classic wing attack to glass uh, mentality. Um, so just a bunch of guys, man, um, that that can really get after it on the glass, Eric. Well, and one thing that Florida can do to kind of take away from that is if Florida is able to run out and get in transition. I mean, West Virginia is not a good transition defensive team. And, uh, I would say it's largely because they do send guys to the glass and they're aggressive. So, I mean, if they're going to send three at the glass, um, there's going to be times where they give up odd man rushes. And and I would just love to see Florida make them pay because the the thing is with, with teams that are committed to offensive rebounding like West Virginia is, is they're going to send a couple guys at the glass and they're going to see if you're going to try to punish them by pushing in transition. And if you're not, they're going to send another guy to the glass. Like that's, that's something that a lot of these old school coaches do when it comes to offensive rebounding is, uh, Hey, if they're, if they're not going to, you know, if you send four guys to the glass and they're not going to punish you by pushing in transition, send a fifth guy to the glass. Like if they're not going to take advantage of of breaks because of it, uh, just keep pressing. So I could, I could kind of see that happening if Florida doesn't, uh, if Florida doesn't push uh, just because, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's how West Virginia has, has kind of gotten teams in the past. If you, you, you need to make, if they're going to glass, if Florida can get some transition opportunities, they'll probably say, okay, we can't send our threes, fours, and fives to the glass. Let's just send our fours and fives. Uh, well, that's going to be a big difference, especially if Florida, you know, Noah Locke at the three or, or whatever it is. So, uh, so that's going to be something to watch. And I mean, that's kind of been in the big, like, who knows if Florida is going to run or not. They've had obviously games where they've run, ran a lot, some where they've hardly ran. So against West Virginia, uh, who, who, like I, I don't know what I they, they push it or not, but uh, they they might have to to loosen up the offensive rebounding of, of West Virginia. Yeah, I was going to get into that. In fact, when uh, Kansas handled West Virginia, although that was at Fog Allen, um, they made seven transition threes in that game, uh, including four by Christian, including four by Christian Braun. And it was interesting if you go to the post game comments because I did this deep dive getting ready for. I told you guys I was excited for this W uh, West Virginia pod, man. Um, Bill Self talked about punishing their floor balance because they really do send people. Um, so you can catch them uh, with, with bad floor balance. And if you attack the side or the space where, you know, they sent people crash into the gra- gra- glass uh, words, um, <laughs> you're going to have opportunities. And it's a big opportunity for Florida, Eric, because, you know, there wasn't really non-conference play. Obviously, Florida's biggest chance at, a, at resume scalps were Virginia, canceled by COVID. Would have loved that game, the way Virginia was playing then, compared to how they are now. Um, and then, obviously, Florida State, where Florida's up 11-3, and then the worst thing in history that could possibly happen to the basketball program happens. Uh, so, you know, a big game where if you win, it's probably worth a seed line, maybe even two. 
Uh, well, I mean, the thing too is that the SEC is not as good as it's been this uh, these yeah. last couple of seasons. Like, this is not a great league, and uh, there's also for that reason there's just not the same opportunities that Florida would normally have in the SEC to uh, to get some wins. Uh, I mean, Kentucky, who would normally be like, oh, great, like Florida always has two chances at a really good win because they play Kentucky twice. It's like, well, you just had a quadrant three loss to them. And like, I don't know if Kentucky's going to be the next time they come around, but like, that's a game that like you probably thought would be a resume booster that now isn't. And uh, you know, LSU kind of same thing. And even, even Tennessee, like Tennessee is obviously not looking quite as uh, quite as good as we once thought. So, so yeah, the opportunities are, are not particularly there. And um, of course, as much as like, you know, I'm not trying to be, um, look at this in a catastrophic way but yeah who who knows when like you know you're about to go play Tennessee again and, and they have a COVID case and suddenly that game doesn't happen or um or LSU or you know you, you just you never know where things are going to be canceled so yeah Florida needs opportunities and uh, you know I was going to ask you Neil do you think West Virginia is better so I, I think they're 11th in the AP poll right now I think you said that they were 12th in the athletics power ranking do you think they are let's let's use the let's use 12th do you think they're better than 12th worse than 12th or or do you think that the, the 12th best team in college basketball I'm gonna hold on 12th and say I think they could be better like in the end, I think that as weird as it is to say, like you lose a McDonald's All-American who was first team All-Big 12 and you get its addition by subtraction, I just think it's helped them define a style for themselves. And I still – I don't know if they're still adjusting to that, although certainly against Texas Tech it looks like they had adjusted, right? And that's that's the question for me, Eric. What about you? Well, the thing I look at is so, – so they beat Texas Tech. Um, that's, uh, by one point at home. So that's, you know, their best win. But when you look at the next best teams they played, um, well, they lost to Texas, they lost to Oklahoma, they lost to Kansas. And of course they lost to Gonzaga, but, uh, you know, everyone loses to Gonzaga, uh, but it's kind of interesting. Spot. Like, yeah, <laughs> but, but I mean, you, you, you look at them and it's like, like their strength has really been in the fact that they've lost those games, but kept them close they haven't actually gotten a lot of good wins. I mean, their best win is Texas tech at home. Um, and then their next best win is, is Oklahoma state, which, you know, has been a good team with one of the best players in college basketball and Cade Cunningham, but uh, not a great team. And, uh, and then their best win after that would be Richmond, who is a, you know, a good solid team, but uh, you know, not a, not incredible. So, so that's just one thing I find interesting about West Virginia that makes me like not totally sure about how good I think they are. Uh, just the fact that I mean they've lost to the four best teams that they've they've played. Um, I think I think that Oklahoma might be better than Texas Tech. So maybe maybe that that, that would be four. They've at least lost to the three best teams they played. So it just kind of makes me wonder. I'm like, ah, do I think they're the twelfth best team? I would say I don't think they're the twelfth best team. I, I I think that they're worse than that. Still a very okay. good team though. But uh, uh, it, it is interesting. I mean they have a defense that could allow Florida to put up points. Um, but they also have an offense that they could really score on Florida. Like this is the exact opposite is of how you would expect a West Virginia, um, Florida game to play. I mean, if this game was played or when was the last time these two teams played a couple of years ago? I mean, that was like two teams that were like defense first, second and third. And like, we'll see who can score on the other end. Uh, now fast forward a couple of seasons. And this is, uh, this is the exact opposite. Two teams that are better offensively than defensively. Yeah, so the last yeah the last one was uh, the uh, coaches for cancer, and that was a ranked. Both Florida's games against West Virginia have come against ranked West Virginia teams, but the one that they beat Mike White's first season was really good and went to the Sweet Sixteen. This one, the one that they beat at coaches for cancer, ended up being not good at all. 
uh, as it turned out, they, they kind of were reshuffling. And I think a lot of people thought they were going to be good and they weren't, but uh, yeah, it is, does, it is worth saying that Darius Nichols uh, and Mike White are two and zero against West Virginia um, at Florida. And, and, you know, maybe they'll, they'll grab a third one. Uh, we are told that we don't do predictions very much. We will not be picking the Florida West Virginia game. Uh, so sorry to that for everybody, but let's roll through the SEC Big 12 Challenge because it's lots of fun. Uh, let's play quick thoughts on some of these games, starting with the big one, Alabama at Oklahoma. Really a, a chance for Alabama to impress here, Eric. Who you got? I, I think Alabama's just rolling. Like I said, I think Oklahoma's very good. Would have been a great game if the Gators were able to play them. But, uh, yeah, Alabama's rolling right now. I'm going Alabama. Yeah. That, oh, by the way, yeah, you just you just nailed yet another one of the the resume uh, games that that was lost. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna go. Like I don't know, man. I, I think Alabama is like on this this mission to roll through the SEC, and I like it was funny. I heard Pat Bradley say, "Well, eighteen and zero is just too ridiculous to talk about," and I was like, "Is it? Is it really?" Um, in this SEC, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know it's only been done twice, so it's not easy, but I think they have a shot at it. I don't know. I feel like this is a, a big one for Lon Kruger's team. They're playing really well. Give me Brady Manic in Oklahoma in a, uh, <laughs> a mild, in a mild upset. So we're going to move on. So we've got just writing all this down. You guys can keep score at home. Arkansas at Oklahoma State. Space and, pace and space versus Cade Cunningham. What you got? Uh, I've got to go Cade Cunningham and, and Oklahoma State in this one. I just think uh, I, I don't see a matchup for him particularly. Um, and I also think, uh, yeah, I also think Caleb Boone, uh, Bernard Kuma, those two centers, I think that they're going to dominate that matchup. Uh, yeah, I like Oklahoma State in this one. Yeah, I also like Oklahoma State. I would be more convinced that it was an Oklahoma State W if home crowds mattered. Um, but right now, of course, because of COVID, they don't. How about a game not a lot of people are talking about that I think is sneaky, sneaky good? Uh, Texas Tech at LSU. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic game just because I probably think LSU is I, – I mean, I still think LSU is is, is really good. Uh, but I also think that Texas Tech – Tech is uh, is very good. Uh, I, I think that their uh, their style, their like no middle defense that Chris Beard has, has made so popular. Um, I, I I think that that's going to give uh, I think that's going to give LSU. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say problems, but I think that they're just not going to let Cam Thomas get into the middle of the floor. I think he's going to take like twenty five shots that are mostly like wing threes off the dribble because uh, uh, Texas Tech's just not going to let them move the ball. So so yeah, give me uh, give me Texas Tech. I'm going to take Texas Tech, but Cam Thomas will make at least four Igor Kulichovs. Uh, to keep it to keep it close, all right. So we are the, the only we've only differed on one Auburn at Baylor. Sharif Cooper versus Baylor's mission to stay undefeated. Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Sharif Cooper, and he's uh, he's as fun to watch as anyone in the country. I mean, this is uh, this is Baylor all the way for me. I just don't. Uh, they just have they have four guys capable of, of hanging with Sharif Cooper, and um, w- while they're doing that, I, I mean the front court I just think is uh, is with Mark Vital and um, Chamuchachua, uh, Flo Thamba. I just think those guys have a huge advantage. The front court. I, I I think the Baylor wins. I don't think it's close. I mean, they got Jared Butler and Masio Teague and Davion Mitchell. Like Sharif Cooper hasn't seen dudes like this yet. Uh, it's going to be like, you know who's going to really like that game? 
NBA scouts. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. How about I, I? I heard an upset prediction on this one from an analyst. Uh, I think we both respect Jay Billis. Um, is he drinking the Kool Aid on Texas at Kentucky? Uh, oh man, I I don't see that. Um, <laughs> as, as much as I would love, that, that'd be a great that'd be a great win for uh, that'd be a great win for uh, for the SEC. There's there's no question. Um, I just I which I, I guess we'll see. I think that Courtney Ramey Ramey might not have played the other the other day for for some reason. Uh, maybe I should have to see the the injury situation. But like if at full strength, like Matt Coleman and Col- Courtney Ramey, Andrew Jones, like that backcourt is so good, and Kentucky's backcourt is is just not very good. I I I think that Texas wins this one uh, easily. But um, yeah, there might be uh, might be a player missing there due to due to something that can make it a little tighter. Yeah, so uh, Texas was without Courtney Ramey and Jericho Sims and Shaka Smart. Um, so, oh, that's right, that's right. That, those are all the people that were out. Um, it looks like Jericho Sims uh, and Brock Cunningham, who's a guy who comes off the bench for them, and uh, Shaka Smart will also be out against Kentucky. But they have Courtney Ramey back. I actually think that's enough. Like, look, this Kentucky team doesn't have problems because they don't have talent. They have problems because Olivier Saar, uh, much to the – Eric and I were wrong, and he's just not comfortable enough playing with his bas- to the basket to give them like that consistent offensive option they need in the absence of the creative point guard, Eric. I think it's a problem for them. I don't think it gets better against a top-10 Texas team. So we're, we're just like rolling through picking Big 12 teams. I think – have I picked an Sadly. SEC team? I have not picked an SEC team to win a single <laughs> game. Iowa State at Mississippi State. I do. I, I think Mississippi State gets this one. Um, Iowa State, I just don't think is very good. I they also had just a, a, a break to COVID for a little while, uh, so it's been. Uh, I, 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 I so yeah, they had they had the big break and then came back and played very poorly against Oklahoma State. Um, but they also played very poorly before the uh, before the COVID stoppage. Um, I think this is not a very good team that is vulnerable after not practicing or playing for for a little while. I I, I do think Mississippi State gets this one. Uh, gets this one with uh, with some relative ease. Yeah, I think if if Alabama Oklahoma is appointment TV, Iowa State at Mississippi State, channeling my inner Jimmy Dykes for the first and only time, uh, is disappointment TV. <laughs> Miss State wins easily. Uh, TCU at Missouri, another one. I don't think we need to discuss it. Missouri, I think, is going to win that game handily. Um, do you, do you disagree, or can we move on? No, handily. Let's move on. All right, Kansas at Tennessee. Oh, Whew. this uh, that I I mean that this is this is definitely the toughest one. Um, I I think uh, especially because if you for for those who missed it, yeah, Kansas has definitely lost a couple a uh, couple games in a row and then like struggled against TCU, who's who's not very good. Um, yeah, I I think that uh, I I think the Kansas is is a little bit wounded, but the thing is that like Kansas can score right now and. Uh, uh, I, Tennessee can't like, I think that they're both good defensive teams. Um, Tennessee might be a little bit better, but I think Kansas is like significantly better scoring the ball, even though Kansas isn't great. I, I, I think Kansas gets this one. So Jaden Springer still kind of battling that. I, I said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, he, like that ankle sprain looked worse than he came back and played the next game and tried to tough it out. And then like, couldn't go. Uh, then he went against Miss state a little bit. And it was enough. Um, 
I think this is a big game. I think it's. I think other than Florida West Virginia, this is the biggest game seed line wise in this whole competition. Um, and I think maybe even more than Florida West Virginia. What's interesting is that they're right next to each other in Bart Torvik and in Kempom, by the way. Uh, and I, yeah, I just think it's going to be a fun one. Give me the Vols at home. Why not? Um, and because especially because Eric picked Kansas, we gotta you know we gotta have a couple to make. Of this course, game. of course, we have a couple to make this interesting. And then uh, so that's appointment TV, and we'll close it with disappointment TV. The worst game in the Big Twelve SEC Challenge: Texas A&M at Kansas State. Somebody's got to get a W. Oh my goodness, this is te- this is absolutely terrible. Um, I've just been in absolute awe of of how bad both of these teams are. Um, ever since um, uh, Kansas State lost to uh, Fort Hayes State, which I forget if that's a Division II school or an NAIA school, but uh, it's one of those. And f- and it's a Division II school, and they beat Kansas State by like by over ten. It was a double digit win. Uh, that's where I knew that things were 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 rough in uh, in Manhattan. So uh, just it, 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 here's the thing: I think they're both terrible. They're both full of players that aren't really high major teams. Um, but give me a. Give me buzz over uh, over Bruce Weber for the coaching edge. So I think uh, Texas A&M wins a game that I will not be watching. You know that Kansas State was in the Elite Eight and lost to Loyola Chicago at the buzzer to go to the Final Four <laughs> three years ago. So, folks, it could be worse. <laughs> those, of you, those of you crying uh, bloody murder, and please don't rattle off all the different rebuttal arguments. I'm just making a joke. Um, but yeah, Bruce Weber, that program from the penthouse to the poorhouse. Buzz Williams' team at least plays hard. Like, I've watched them a couple times, and I'm not going to say that, like, I'm better for it, but they, they, do, they do compete, man. And I think they'll compete uh, enough here to get, to get a win in Manhattan, which, you know, if let's put it this way if Eric and I are right, the Big 12 SEC Challenge could be close, and like a Florida win over West Virginia could swing things. So uh, it's definitely one of the swing games. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'll tell you this: Florida certainly has the talent to win the game. Yeah, they really. The map. I mean, Florida's offense has been solid this year, and uh, and West Virginia's defense has been has been a little bit poor. And uh, I also think that Florida, you know, hypothetically, could could hang on the glass a little bit if they if they if they play two bigs, um, which I looks like they're trending towards. Um, yeah, I can see I can see the roadmap to to Florida getting a win. There, there there's no question. All right. Well, we'll find out 2 p.m. on ESPN, the mothership, Saturday, and uh, Eric and I will be back to preview what I think is a super fascinating game next week as well against the South Carolina Gamecocks. Take care, everybody.